Hi, welcome to the Dan Bradbury podcast where turnover is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. In this podcast, I'll bring you resources, tips, interviews, and lots more to help to grow your business and make it less dependent on you. Hey guys, Dan Bradbury here. In a moment, I'm super excited to be joined by Nick Matthew OBE. He's a three times world squash champion, three times Commonwealth Games gold medalist, and a three times British Open champion, as well as 10 times British national champion. So he's, in my opinion, the greatest squash player England's ever produced. And I'm um, delighted to have him here today to be talking about mental toughness. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, Dan. Nice introduction there. Thank you. We obviously know each other going way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long time. So it was hard of me to say such nice things about you. But, but <laughs> <laughs> So coming to the chase. So uh, diving into the deep end, I, I, Nick, you've achieved something that very few people have done. I think you were one of only five squash players to have three world titles to their name. And it, that must have been a lifelong ambition. So take us to, I think it was December 2010 in Saudi Arabia. When you hit that winning shot, how did it feel? when you became world champion for the first time? Yeah, surreal, really. You kind of build everything up to that moment. And then the overriding thing is you think it's going to be joy, but it's kind of relief that you didn't stuff it up at that point, you know, especially the way it was happening, the kind of last couple of games of the match, I kind of got on top and the finish line was getting tantalizingly close. And I basically spent the best part of about 20 minutes telling myself, to not get ahead of myself, you know, don't see that finish line, just a little, those, that sports psychology mantra kind of processes, not outcome, just really getting into the processes. And I was kind of 10-2 or 10-3 up, I think in the fourth game of that final. And even still, I was so much in that processor zone that it kind of surprised me when it was almost a surprise when you finally won, because I knew that if I got ahead of myself, that I could slip up and I could suddenly get embroiled in a fifth game perhaps. Or So the weird thing is you, you spend all your life aiming for something and then when you get there, it's either a surprise or a relief and you're not quite sure what to do really because you've been kind of living in this protective bubble during the whole course of the experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think sometimes when people look back, whether it be in sport or in business and somebody's you know, successful in hindsight, what, what's the saying? for masters sport, you know, the older I get, the better I was, you know, it's easy for people to look back and go, oh, you always had it, it was always going to be the world champion. But when did you start playing on the professional tour? I started playing on the professional tour when I was 18, started playing squash when I was eight, was never a top junior. I did break into the national squads when I was kind of about 14, the junior squads, but I was always kind of at the bottom end. It wasn't probably until I was about 16 that I thought to myself, you know, I want to do this. I want this to be my profession. I want this to be my career. I started to maybe drop a few other sports I was doing on the side. And then kind of 17, 18 had that big decision. Do I go for it? You know, it's really at that stage, throwing yourself basically sink or swim into the biggest ocean in the world with no armbands and off you go. And I was very lucky at that time to have a support network in place that made me feel like I did have a little bit of that, that kind of almost like life raft around me. England squashed the funding had just come in at that point with the national lottery. So we had great setup there of, it wasn't an amount of money going into your bank account that made the difference. It was the training support, having your, your strength conditioning funded, your physio funded, your psychology funded. 
that side of things that you perhaps wouldn't be able to afford otherwise, giving you that kind of team around you. I had a great network in Sheffield, so I didn't have to, you know, with the clubs and institutes, so I didn't have to go and move elsewhere to fulfill my ambition. I could be at home. And then the other thing was a supportive kind of family and and friend, my parents around me that supported me. They probably, if they're honest, their two teachers probably wanted me to go to uni, but we kind of came to an agreement that I could go on the tour and always go back to uni if it didn't kind of work out. And I, I suppose, because for those that don't know, you know, squash isn't exactly a lucrative sport compared to compared to many others. So if, if you started playing on the professional tour about age 18, so I guess that's the late 90s, you, your first major title, depends how you define major title, wasn't the British Open, I think, until 2006. So it's, it's quite a long window, kind of in the wilderness, so to speak, looping back to mental toughness. Do you believe, was it always within you? Did you always believe that you were going to make it? Do you believe champions are, are born and it was instinct, you were always going to get there or was it made, developed over time? You know, I'm on the other side of that now. I'm working with players in my own academy and I'm seeing kind of eight people at 18 having to make those same decisions. It's incredibly tough. You know, I said I was very lucky. The timing was when that lottery funding first came into existence. That was huge. I'm seeing players now at 18. They've not got that same sort of support. They're having to play leagues around the country for, for various teams. You know, Warwickshire League on a Monday night, Northwest Counties on a Tuesday, Yorkshire League on a on a Wednesday and then travel to an event maybe on the Thursday and then they're trying to peak perform and they're trying to improve. They can't afford to have a physio to look after their body. I was very lucky that I could kind of get out that rat race and I could focus on my training. I could focus on what I needed to do. So it is incredibly tough. I think one thing that's improved in squash now is there's a much better network of university support where you can combine your education with the squash, which will take a bit of pressure off. We've seen that in the US now. You know, the standard of squash is fantastic. That wasn't really an option for me. Going back to that question, I think that it's probably two things. Number one is the circumstances. You know, I see players who get on that rat race of, they might have all the potential in the world. They're getting that rat race of just having to kind of hand-to-mouth survival, that it saps their passion, their enthusiasm, that improvement, that time spent to try and improve everything. You're really living on a chicken and egg situation there for the young players. So even with the best mentality, even with the best personality for it, the best skill in the world, you've got a difficult set of circumstances there in front of you. You're not always going to have sponsorship or funding to allow you to do that. Everything being even, I, I think you've got a, a, a real bit of both. I don't want to sit on the fence here and get a sore bump. That sort of champions made or is that within you already or is it kind of something you can train? That's a million dollar question. But seeing it on the other side now, I think there's certain things that you people have in them that you, it's very difficult to teach. You know, you've either got certain attributes physically or mentally in you, whether that's from your, your upbringing or just naturally. And then there's other things you can kind of coach. Like I'm seeing players now developing mental toughness. I've got a player I currently coach who's 21 now. At 18, I thought he had all of the attributes, but mentally, he, he looked like he wasn't enjoying his squash. He was coming in every day. The body language was down, wasn't kind of willing to, to fight. And then at 21, I'm seeing a different animal now. The maturity, the learning, and those things are kind of coming through to support his other existing attributes. So I firmly believe that, sorry for the long-winded answer there, but I firmly believe that it's both. Yeah, it's interesting because the environment is definitely critical. There has to be development as well, because 
even though you came in with the lottery funding, et cetera, and that gave you perhaps advantages and access to team coaches and support that helped you. I mean, I remember, Nick, I, I remember when you were a junior, people saying they'll never make it as a professional. And then when you were a professional, it's like, well, you might make it into the top 100 in the world, but he's not going to make it into the top 50. Then I remember when you, and this is, you know, at a club level, people from your own club that should be your biggest fans are going, well, you know, I'll never make the top 10. And it's like, we'll never become world number one. And then, and then so how did you deal with the naysayers or equally, I suppose, disappointments? Because you've had plenty of highs and lows from an injury point of view that could have ended your career and yet you came back. So what's your advice to players or people when they come up against those inevitable obstacles? The things perhaps I heard in hearsay afterwards, you know, it wasn't probably something that I was kind of aware of necessarily at that time. You know, that might have been going on. And I think that's there's nothing personal about that. That's kind of maybe the way humans work, you know, like, don't forget, they say, oh, we got to top 20, but you're not going to make it to the top 10. And it's a lot of people, to the guy who sat 150 in the world, top 20 would be making it, (laughs) you know, so there's various levels of making it, isn't there? You know, not everyone can get to world number one, but you can still maximize your potential. And that's ultimately what it was about. And that's ultimately what drove me every single day. It wasn't about what ranking I got to, it was, you know, you have to have a dream goal to get into world champion. World War One was my dream goal. But that was not something I focused on day in, day out because it's so far away in the future that it's not, it's actually can be demotivational at times because it's too far away. Oh, I'm so far away from it and you can get deflated. So all that drove me from day in, day out was just that constant striving for improvement, maximizing myself, no stone unturned. I strongly believe that the funding massively helped me. Again, it might be looking back with rose-tinted glasses. I believe that I would have found a way to have made it regardless. And, and that's not diminishing the funding in any way. I just kind of stubbornness. I might be just completely talking nonsense, but you have to believe. Like, if I don't believe that, and I don't believe that I, you know, at that time get to the one who was going to believe it, right. you know, you said everyone else didn't. So what chance would I have if I start listening to people? You know, if you, if a few people do say that, by the way, and you do hear it, it's brilliant. It gives you occasionally a little bit of fuel to your fire that you can kind of say, oh, I'll prove them wrong. But that might help you, I would say, on a one-off session or a one-off week here and there if you just need to prove someone wrong. And it just, you're having that one of those mornings where, oh, it's cold, it's wet, it's windy. I, I can't get out of bed this morning. I'm tired to do this session. I'm sore, I'm aching. Thinking about those people at that point on that one day might help, but ultimately it has to come from within. And that was the thing that I always thought I can't can't ask, you know, I've got a coach, got a physio, I've got a strength condition coach, got my dad, everyone, but they can't do it for me. Ultimately, I've got to do it for myself. And that was always the thing that drove me on the most. Let's talk about rivalries for a second. Obviously in squash, uh, your nickname on the the tour was the wolf. So you're worrying over kind of that fierce, competitive nature. But how big a part did that play? When you second world title in 2011, then I, if I'm correct in my memory, you were knocked out in, in the semis. And then yet you then bounced back to have an epic, probably one of the best games of squash I've ever seen in 2013, which was in Manchester against Gaultier. Why, what, how big, whether it be Gaultier, whether it be Wolstrop, how big a part did it motivate you? Did the rivalries motivate you or did it get in the way? No, I think I was, you know, looking back, I was very lucky to be part of, I think, one of the the best eras, I think, of squash. And I don't just mean that. It's very difficult to compare eras in terms of levels, you know, because every era is 
anyone who gets to the very top of the game is deserves immense credit in any year and it's very difficult. I don't try to get into that whole like was Barrington better than Jahangir Khan or, or so on. I think what was brilliant about our era is you had so many different personalities involved in it and, and that's what kind of made the right. It wasn't just the rivalries in terms of their squash level. You know, it was different personalities from all corners of the globe involved in it and I think that Obviously, in recent years, we've seen, for example, an Egyptian dominance. So there's perhaps not been that variety to to certain rivalries. You know, I think it's brilliant now, for example, a Paul Cole coming in. If you can get a Joel Making coming up, a Diego, then all of a sudden you start to get a few different people in the blend. But when you look at the characters and, and, and the difference in character between myself and a James Wilstrop from the same country, but couldn't be more opposite in terms of personality. You've got a Gaultier who, you know, couldn't be more French, whereas part on his sleeve, then the Egyptian, the cool and calmness of a Shabana, the skill and the unbelievable raw talent of like a Rami Ashur, and then someone like a Shabagi coming in and trying to rip up the established order, the kind of, you know, his nickname was the beast and basically just come and try and rip that up when he burst on the scene. So you had so many and all, every single one of those people was a massively big personality in their own right. And so that created a, I think, you know, the number of people that have said to me that was their kind of favorite era to watch just because of those, those clashes. Yeah, it's interesting. And I suppose it's almost a dichotomy because, you know, you mentioned Egypt. You could say that's an example of having the right environment. You know, they put so much focus and time and attention and some money into developing their, their national squad. And now they are dominant at a precedented level. And yet at the same time, I suppose you believe that in your era, that diversity of personalities and playing styles as well. I mean, do you yeah, think yeah. That, that diversity raised the standard of the game? Was the game played better? Or is that, or is it just different? I don't think you say better. I just think there was, there was perhaps, you know, and, and fair play to, you know, the Egyptians. There are a lot of different styles. You know, when they first came on the sea, you always say, oh, there was an Egyptian style and it was wristy, it was more attacking. They used the front a lot more, the angles. But, you know, I've seen someone like Shabana, Kareem Darwish that I came up against. You never find two players who had better basic games to the back of the, they obviously had the finishing touches as well. But they, you know, that was always known as a kind of traditional English style, get kind of good length and, and build from the basics well. So they do have different styles of play, you know, like Ali Farag has such a different style of play from a Mohamed Oshabagi, you know, from a Mustafa Asala has a very different style of play to a Mazen Hesham. There's so many, but there's so many different styles. That's fantastic. I think perhaps not as many personalities wearing their heart on the sleeve as the, the once was. Um, that's not to say, you know, that's why we hope a few more of these are different ones. Obviously not mentioned yet the women's game. I think that's been fantastic over the last few years and actually really raising the bar for the men to follow actually at the moment. Yeah, no, it, it's phenomenal actually to see the profile of the game, how it's raised, obviously much more televised. It's still devastating that squash hasn't made it into the Olympics, but that's, yeah, we won't go there. Let's not go there. Go there. I go there far too often. A whole other podcast. So, final two questions, Nick. So, respect for your time, and I, I know you've got to go. So, I'm curious, when you got there, quote unquote, made it, achieved your lifelong ambitions, I know a lot of people, same stream business, uh, once they reach a certain level, they often plateau. Like, like how did you stay hungry? Because you had a, a very long career. And so, you stayed in the top 10 for a very long period of time. How did you stay hungry after you? you know, won the British Open, won the, become world number one, won the world title, won the Commonwealth goal. How did you keep going for so many years? So I think I 
one kind of, I guess, my major titles relatively late in my career. You know, I was, you know, one of my, probably the proudest stat of mine is that I'm the oldest first time world number one. So there's people who have held it later and into their 30s, so on. But to be there for the first time at one month short of 30 is quite late, ultimately. So I think kind of by the time I did and I won my first world title again at 30, there was a level of maturity there at that point, you hope. <laughs> anyway, by the time you're 30 to deal with it. And I had a couple of things that had happened previously that enabled me. So my biggest problem growing up was always when I had success. I was always that person who responded the best to being the hunter. You know, when I was never the top, I was always coming up, I was always fighting and there was always people better than me. So it was always the next level and then who's next and then what's next. And I struggle when I did well in something, I didn't know what to do. When I was winning a game 7-2, my coaches used to say to me, that's when you're at most vulnerable because you get complacent. Whereas when I was 7-2 down, I was at my best because I was chasing, I was hunting. That kind of stuck with me through my career. When I won the British Open in 2006, it was a little bit unexpected. I was seeded kind of eight, nine. I remember winning that and then playing really poorly on tour for a number of months after that, three, four, five months on tour. I kind of, in my mind, I remember thinking I made it. I've done it now. I've won the British Open. It's something I've watched as a kid. I've probably lost that hunger day to day that you've just described. So it took me a while to get that back. Likewise, when I got to World No. 1 for the first time, I don't think I lost the hunger, but I was too busy looking over my shoulder. How can I keep the number two down and, and what the ranking points? And I've got enough points this month to stay at number one. Whereas previously, I'd always looked ahead to stretch myself to get better. So it perhaps wasn't until... I got to number one the second or third time. I think the second time it wasn't until, and then when I won the world championship, I'd had these setbacks previously on the back of success that I knew how to handle it. And that was to still adopt that. I was starting to feel like it's cheesy, isn't it? To sometimes quote these famous sayings or these famous quotes, but that be the hunter, not the hunted is such a, a quote that resonated with me. And to adopt that mentality, even if you're having success. And there's always something, you know, you might not be able to scale your next Everest immediately. I think one thing I learned was allowing yourself that high, enjoy it because you work for it for so much, but then allow yourself to come down the mountain a little bit before reestablishing how you're going to then scale it again, if that makes sense. Like to kind of scale it and then go, right, what's next immediately? You're going to burn yourself out. Yeah, well, fascinating. Well, I, actually, that's perfect segue to our last question, Nick, which is obviously you founded several years ago now, five years or so ago, you founded the Nick Matthew Academy to develop the next generation of players. How important is it, the right coach? What kind of impact can the right coach or mentor or advisor have? What, what do you see as being the role of yourself as a coach or a mentor or an advisor? Well, I think you said the word earlier, Dan, you said environment, you know, that for me, the biggest thing has just been creating an environment which is healthy, has excellence in it day to day, you know, high standards in terms of off the court, you know, the things that you can control, like your warm ups, your nutrition, your hydration, your rest, everything, you know, that preparation side of things. Because when you go on the court, there's a number of variables. Your opponent's trying to do something, you know, you might be tired one day, but just giving yourself the best chance to perform, doing all of those things, bringing the right attitude every day. You know, just trying to create an, an environment that we require that really from everyone and, and remembering to enjoy it as well. So 
there is a time to have a beer afterwards. Just pick your right moments. You know, there is a time to have a laugh. Again, pick the right, you know, you want to laugh all the time, but there's, there's, there's chances for those lighthearted moments. It's not just all like deadly serious things. And we're starting currently at the pro players. My goal is for that to filter all the way down to all the youngsters that are kind of starting on the academy, the schools that we're getting into and have a pathway away kind of through university right the way from top to bottom. And at the moment, we kind of early days in terms of you can't create, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? But you, I think you start with that environment and then you can kind of build it from there. Yeah, very nice. Well, I guess in a sense, maybe that maybe that's your next Everest, right? So it takes time to scale the mountain. So Nick, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. For, for anybody who wants to find out more about you or your career or what, what you're up to, what's, what's the best way to, where's the best place to find you? Where's the best place to go? Yeah, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Nick Matthew on Instagram and Facebook. I'm at Nick Matthew Squash. We tried to get a nice mix of, uh, not everything is squash, you know, a nice mix of kind of live family squash. Sheffield Wednesday, if you're interested in that, there's all sorts going on on there. Very good. Well, Nick, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. That always keeps you grounded, by the way. You're never in danger of getting too carried away with things if you support Sheffield Wednesday. That keeps your feet firmly on the ground. (laughs) Well said. Well said. Nick Matthew, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Three things you need to do now. Number one, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss an episode. Also, get on over to Amazon to get a copy of my latest book, Turnover is Vanity, Profit is Sanity, Nine and a Half Steps to Improving Your Profits and Cash Flow. Also, join our Facebook group, the Turnover is Vanity, Profit is Sanity community to connect with other business owners.